In our today's episode, we talk with David Ross that is coming to us from Sydney. David works as a VUCA strategist, having been crazy enough to found Phoenix Strategic Management during the global financial crisis. For close to 30 years, he has been helping leaders, organizations and communities thrive by transcending the unthinkable when dealing with their most complex and often polarizing opportunities, shocks and crises. By doing so, his work helps to protect the reputation and performance of his clients, organizations and communities. That can often involve guiding clients worldwide to epiphanies and aha moments about the deeper stories they unwittingly work to. Stories that may no longer be appropriate for the 21st century, but still play a dominant role in influencing their cultures, mindset, leadership styles and behaviors towards stakeholders. Of relevance to VUCA leadership, he is also the author of the recently published Confronting the Storm. Welcome, David. Pleased to have you here. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this, Spiros. All right. Um, by the time, what is what time is it now in uh, in uh, in Sydney? It's ten past seven in the evening. All right. Lovely. Thank you for. And is it uh, 10, ten past eight? Ten past ten. Yes. In Athens, yeah. In Athens. Cool. All right. So, David, uh, I had the, the chance and the pleasure to talk with you before we jump in this episode. And uh, there were a lot of uh, interesting insights that you brought uh, and that made us to decide to come up with this, uh, with this one. So, uh, my first question is, uh, please tell us a bit more about where were you before, uh, before you jumped to the industry that you are serving at the moment and how did you came up with the ideas that you spread through your social media and to, uh, to your recent published book? Well, thank you for that. Um, that's a that's a huge question and I'll try not to take up um, an hour in response. I started my career as an ecologist in environmental management issues and that while that took up about the first let's say 10 years of my career, it had a massive influence on where my career has headed ever since. So, um, in those days, not only was I um, seeing how the natural environment was being impacted upon by humanity, uh, but I was doing a lot of work with communities as well, trying to get them to see the importance of the work we were doing um, and also trying to get um, decision makers, particularly in government, to see the importance of the work we were doing. And I was often getting frustrated with the things that I valued, the planet and people wasn't something that was valued by, by the decision makers. So perhaps much to the disappointment of my wife, um, I embarked on many, many years of study and postgraduate study kind of re in some ways it felt like reinventing myself environmental engineering 
um, which made a lot of sense having been at a colleges, but then moving into uh, an MBA focusing on strategic management, um, strategic foresight studies, and also conflict um, um, resolution studies and peace practice studies under the, one of the most amazing gentlemen um, at that stage. He's probably 90 years of age, um, a Norwegian Name, his name is Johan Galtung, who was seen as one of the um, parents, if you like, of the development of peace practice. And, and through each of those um, studies and, and my experience through time, um, you know, I learned so much. And at times, Spiros, it felt like my career didn't seem to have a clear plan to it. I was sort of jumping from one place to another. Okay. And finally, bring it back to part of your question. Before I went out on my own, I had been working in a number of energy companies, excuse me, in a number of energy companies um, in roles such as um, environment, safety and, and, um, and health, um, then moving into strategy, head of strategy and head of uh, CSR uh, for an electricity transmission company. And I never had, to be honest with you, I, I never had plans to go out on my own. As I've been doing my studies, particularly the MBA, um, my plan was to get into a senior role in government. And I was quite nicely on that pathway. And then my mum, um, at 69 years of um, age, um, passed away, in my mind, far too early from Alzheimer's. And if you or any of your um, viewers have been through that experience, you know what an undignified um, end that is to um, um, a life, somebody who I love dearly. And the point of that, of bringing mum into the conversation, was that um, with, at that stage I had two young kids and I started to think about, with my career, wanting to do something that was truly meaningful. And it was in suddenly in about 2009, when the GFC, Global Financial Crisis, was still underway, suddenly a, a voice said to me, go out on your own. And the next day I had registered with government um, a business name and got all tax details all sorted. Um, and the rest has been an absolute dream. So um, in terms of, I think you'd said before, Spiros, about, you know, my, my thinking, how's my thinking evolved through time um, with the services that I deliver now. Um, it's been fascinating that so many things have emerged for me since I started my business, since I started Phoenix. I'd initially gone out planning to um, offer um, strategic advisory services around sustainability and, and CSR. Mm -hmm. And in around 2009, 2010, nobody was interested in that. And it could be argued that we're still not there even today. But I was very fortunate that, as I said, a lot of things emerged for me and 
and I was flexible enough to to run with those. So um, probably it's the best it's best for me to now just to start summarising um, where I'm at. But essentially, um, I work with in that context of VUCA, I work with leaders, organisations, and communities. Um, to successfully deal with their most complex and controversial often social, environmental and economic challenges. And by doing that, I help organisations and communities protect their reputation uh, and their performance. And in the case of communities, it can often be a case of helping them to protect um, in the longer term their, their viability or their sustainability as communities. In terms. So um, I hope that makes sense. Essentially, it's focusing on... Um, coaching people around leadership, strategic management. And um, one thing I didn't say before is that when I was a child, I was, when you when you talk about as a child, um, you know, what did you want to do when you grew up? I can tell you and your viewers that there was no point in my life I dreamed as a child to be an expert in managing outrage and, and community conflict, but that's where that's another part of where I'm at now. So I'm essentially a strategist and a peacemaker. Awesome. <laughs> that was a, a real VUCA journey with experiences, changes, and, uh, and adverse events. Very much so. So nice. Uh, Thank at you. The end, at least it is uh, quite inspiring. Uh, and that makes sense on uh, how we are here today and what we are uh, about to bring to the light for our viewers. So let me come with, uh, with the first uh, practical, actual question. Is the world okay. getting increasingly VUCA? Thank you for that one. Um, when it comes to seeing things around VUCA on social media, um, almost with a little bit of sadistic delight, I often see that you know there's, there's there can be some heated debate on social media around questions like this, mm-hmm. and often what people say is you might have said it yourself, or you, your viewers have said it, where people say, "Well, um, how can if if we were to look back at the great wars of the early 20th century, how can we suggest that our challenges are any more difficult than those? That we're how can we say that?" Whereas as VUCA as it was back then, and and hopefully it surprises your viewers when I say that you know um, I wasn't actually around then, so I, I can't I can't with confidence um, respond to that, and so I've, I've got to theorise. But I wonder if if we're getting increasingly VUCA. And I, I wonder if we're getting increasingly VUCA. In, in, in my experience and from my research um, for confronting the storm, I, I see that at least there are four interconnected um, causes of us becoming increasingly VUCA. So um, technology, unsurprisingly, um, plays, a, plays a big part in that. We, whenever we talk about VUCA, we often talk about technology um, and in particular the exponential advancement taking place Um, you and your viewers have probably heard of people like um, the futurist Ray Kurzweil uh, who believes that in the space of the 21st century 
um, we will have, I think it's 20,000 years worth of technological progress. So for me, that sort of you know, blows my mind. And as a result of that advancement, obviously, that we're going to become uh, an increasingly networked world in ways that we can't anticipate at the moment. Even now, as we speak, and um, what's it called, chat GPT, it's been getting a lot of discussion in the last few months. And, you know, even at this moment, I'd suggest that a lot of us can't anticipate what does chat GPT alone mean for, for the world and society. Which brings me back, to, bring, brings me to um, cause number two, that in, a, in an increasingly networked world, there's implications for our people, for society, I should say. Um, I, what I see and, and what's coming out of my research uh, is that in an increasingly networked world, people are more coordinated than they've ever been. They can connect to people, like-minded like people, more so than ever before. And as a result, they're more questioning um, of our institutions and our, our leaders than ever before. We're becoming more partisan, as unfortunately we're seeing in particular in, in, in the US. Clause uh, number three, um, one that brings sadness to me is that we can anticipate that uh, we are getting too close to reaching some environmental tipping points. Um, obviously, people are talking about climate change. We're talking, we're starting to have a better conversation around the decline of our biodiversity that we're coming to, it looks like, or we're in our sixth wave of mass extinction, extinctions of flora and fauna. But there are so many other environmental tipping points that we're at risk of reaching that people just don't hear about. So um, things like the, the risk of acidification of our, our, our oceans, which obviously has implications for food and economic security, again, having implications for becoming an increasingly big world. Um, and we also have run the risk of issues around, say, the um, phosphorus and nitrogen are getting to the point where they might go beyond thresholds for what's acceptable. I don't know if acceptable is the right word, but I'll use that for brevity's sake now in terms of um, impacts upon our soils and our waterways as well. And finally, um, the fourth cause that I'm seeing that would be resulting in, it, in an increasingly VUCA world is uh, relates to governance that our, our structures and systems and processes that governments put in place and corporations put in place to deliver work are completely inappropriate, if you like. They're certainly unsuccessful when it comes to responding to um, our wicked problems and, and also responding to um, people who are more questioned than ever before. So, as I said before, each of those four things I see as being interconnected. Um, and you know, not only are they resulting in an increasingly wicked world, but some people are seeing that they are creating super wicked problems. Mm -hmm. um, and I also came across a term I'd never heard before recently, that 2023 is being seen as an era of poly crisis. So hopefully all of what I've just described connected in different ways that we struggle to anticipate or 
depreciate over time and leading to um, increasing VUCA. That is amazing. Um, there is one thing that I communicate to the people that I work with the last uh, at least two years. So this I'm saying is that uh, doesn't matter anymore what the profession is, what the uh, industry is. We all now uh, operating in a high risk industry, in a high yes. risk world. And if you will check, if you will see the definition of high risk industry, we will find that it is the impact that has uh, that affects people, economy, and environment. So yes. it was so delightful that you came up with those four uh, four uh, increasing uh, parameters. Let's say uh, let's say. Um, um, Topics, uh, how do you, you name it? It is amazing. So, uh, thank you. Before we go further, further, uh, what what is your opinion uh, on that? According to those four things that you just referred to, is it um, is it like it, this that we thought? And now I'm trying to verify my thoughts. Uh, st straightforward. Uh, do you also agree that everyone doesn't matter the um the industry that they work in we operate in a high risk industry slash world absolutely I, I was going to say before that um i found your observations um it was very well said um a, a great observation that just as people say that climate change affects us all well you know if you imagine a series of layers that I've described and you've just built on. Um, how can how can anyone not be in a high risk industry nowadays? All right, that is so so nice. Um, let's jump to the to the second question, and uh, um, I will come up with some pretty fruitful notes that uh, that I have here. What is WUCA uh, got to do with leaders? In business or government, I I often hear from leaders when if sorry if I take a step back I, I'm I'm still surprised in some ways that people so many people haven't heard of the term VUCA. Mm. Um, you know, it's been around. I, I won't do the maths, but around thirty years or something. And when I start to talk about VUCA to new clients or prospective clients um, worldwide, and, and I introduce the fact that VUCA gained prominence and, and was coined by the US Army War College, um, as you just asked me, they, they immediately think, well, that's an army issue or that's a military issue. Um, that's got nothing to do with me. But it's interesting, um, I was reading some of my old notes for my research for the book recently, and I'd called upon um, a book by two management academics from, I think they're from the US, um, Warren Bennis and Bert, I think his name's Nanus, who in the mid 80s, so management academics in the mid 80s were recognizing 
um, a significant change that was taking place. And with so many organisations that they were working with, they were seeing that the problems that organisations were facing um, were um, increasingly complex um, and were characterised with um, too much, if you like, polarity and contradictions. Mm-hmm. So that's always been, what's that, for 40 years, um, people have been recognising that essentially what I was trying to say before was that the War College was essentially inspired by people like these management academics mm-hmm. to develop or to, to build on that to develop VUCA. So it's been there for 40 years. But even in the work that I do, um, you know, as I said before, that I, I, I work um, with um, leaders and communities of people from all walks of life on the most complex and controversial issues. And that often involves me almost working at an intersection of corporate strategy, government policy, um, community and society, and the natural environment. Mm-hmm. And it, I really empathise with leaders in that situation, Spiros, because while they don't know the word, the, the term VUCA, or they may not think they operate in VUCA, but when I see them operating in, an, in a VUCA world, and they're trying to unsuccessfully uh, seek to impose on their staff or on stakeholders. They're trying to impose um, solutions, impose control and stability on these organisations, on, on, on stakeholders. And on the flip side, um, I see where the stakeholders who, some might be at, at a grassroots level, and they are seeing the impacts from these decisions on their community, on their region, on their province, and so on and so on, on their country, and on the natural environment. And you know what I often see in that case is that trust is declining because um, stakeholders and communities feel that no real um, improvements are being made on these challenges. And another thing too is that stakeholders are often feeling almost, it's a, um, a thing called solastalgia, which is a almost like an environmentally induced mental health disorder where people are, uh, are longing for that sense of home, that sense of community they used to have, and what community used to look like 30, 50 years ago. And they feel like the big end of town um, has imposed change on their way of life. Okay. And you know, so I suppose what I'm trying to show is how VUCA can exist for organisations at a number of different levels. We talked before about sort of those bigger um, planet-wide issues through what can happen at a local level. And I'd suggest to leaders that um, you ignore um, VUCA at your peril.
I highly agree because as I told you in the previous conversation, uh, I also empathize leaders. And uh, the, the first realization that uh, brought me in this uh, situation to empathize them, I mean, was because I come from the, I have military background. So I became quite quickly aware of uh, that they love to read military books. But at the same time, I was able to see uh, how they were struggling on how to put this knowledge into practice. And the most common thing was that there is a misunderstanding on this framework, the, the command and control framework. So this, according to my understanding and my interaction with them, is the, um, the tipping point. So this brings me to a, an additional question on those that you previously uh, talked about. At the moment, nowadays, uh, with the increased technology, with the increased of uh, knowledge and the resources that humans and definitely leaders have access to, why do you think uh, the results are still uh, poor? And why the, um, the results of the decisions do not help them to go the step further or to go to the direction that they wish to? That's such a great question. And um, as a little bit of background, I, I'm, I'm thinking through an answer as I talk. I'm almost trying to stall while I keep getting the answer for you. <laughs> but I watched one of your other fantastic interviews with Kent Reynolds, I think it was, uh, from the US. I think he's in leadership development or something like that from memory. And what really struck me, I, I loved the, the interview, but one thing that stood out for me was that he almost sounded, uh, I was going to say exasperated, and maybe that's making it sound too dramatic, but he was wondering something along the lines of why is it that our leaders aren't really, you know, we've got lots of people in leadership positions. Um, there's lots of books out there on on leadership theory, and yet we're still not building capability in our leaders. And I thought that was a fantastic observation and one that I can really connect with. And if you don't mind, I'd like to try and link that in with what you've just um, asked of me. <laughs> Excuse me for the cough. I, and forgive me and, and, and to your viewers if some of this might sound a bit very big picture. I'll give a couple of answers. One is, I feel that leaders subconsciously are working to a story that drives how they lead, drives their thinking, their behaviours and their actions. And what I'm getting at there is, is the story of, um, of, of the great leader who, coming back to something you just said, well, probably would have been, um, you know, in, in centuries by, um, would have been in the military in, in some form or another. You know, we still use terms like captains of industry even now. Um, that story of the great leader conveyed um, strength. It conveyed followership, that the great leader made decisions on our behalf, and we did, we allowed that to happen without question. 
I argue um, um, with my, I, I argue it in the book and with clients that I, I don't think that that story is appropriate anymore. Um, no one person has the time um, to really appreciate, fully appreciate their context. And they don't have the time then to fully develop a, a strategy on their own and to deliver that, to implement it. They don't have the time whatsoever. So that's one answer. Um, another one that springs to mind is kind of that, I'd see it as a leadership paradox, that often people get into leadership positions, you know, moving from um, um, an officer position into middle management and, and so on, based on how they were able to excel in a technical position. But the paradox for me is that unfortunately, once you get into those middle management and senior positions, it's only natural that people want to keep calling on those technical skills, view the world through the lens of you know, that technical position, because that's often aligned with what they love to do. So environmental people, as a, to try and give an example and explain it a little, a little bit more, environmental people would often want to see management positions through the lens of, well, how are we looking after the natural environment? And often trying to do that work solely on their own, as they did in technical roles. But the challenge then is for them, um, and I see this on a daily basis, that unfortunately, because you're trying to work through people now, rather than do the work yourself, you've got to build a completely different, completely different set of skills. Um, and and I, I just don't see many people doing that. Um, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll share one more that because of that story of the great leader, what I often hear in, in my coaching conversations with clients around the world is that because of that story, they feel uh, compelled to not to, to, to keep quiet, if you like, that I don't have the answers to everything. Um, you know, leadership is, can often be a very lonely situation for people. I'd suggest to leaders that nowadays it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to admit that, you know, put your hand up. I don't have all the answers now. Um, I need to rely on all of you to help us find that way forward. So I hope that makes sense. Absolutely. And thanks for, for saying. And uh, it, it was very insightful, the, the different perspective that, uh, that you brought. The, the most impressive one was uh, your perspective according to the, to the story. So, yeah. Totally Thank you. I, look, I, I, I'd, if you don't mind, I'd love to hear your perspective on that, Spiros, because you, you'd said earlier on about how you see leaders are struggling. You see leaders struggling. What does that look like and what are you hearing? What uh, do I sense with uh, them when I interact with them? 
Yeah, what, yeah, that's right. What What are you hearing from leaders or, you know, um, are you seeing stress? Are you seeing loneliness? It, it depends on the environment that uh, the discussion take, takes place. So if we are in a, in a place that it is, um, let's say, safe, out of the organization, uh, out of the office, then they they become, they, they accept for, for themselves to become vulnerable. But when yes. they are in the environment, the dynamic environment of the organization or the office, then uh, the more technical stuff comes, you know, to the, um, to the surface. Yes, so yes. The thing that, okay, when, where, where is that line that we talk technical skills and that we understand how the, the non-technical skills, the soft skills can bring you, can work as a glue to put everything in place and take decisions that will support uh, your thoughts and the scopes of your organization. So it is a big everyday fight starting with themselves. And this is why uh, we, we exist. If everything was okay, and if the thing was about, okay, I'm the leader, everything works, works fine then. But uh, this is a very uh, nice example of how uh, the leadership and followership works. Because, you know, when you work with those people, with those leaders, you, you will be at the one moment a leader, but the other time you have to be the follower. And, you know, this change of roles, uh, interacting with them is very, very interesting and it's fascinating. Yeah, hey, thank you for sharing that. I can really connect with that, uh, with all of that. But particularly when you just said about the issue of leadership, one minute being, if I heard you correctly, you know, sort of swapping roles according to the situation where sometimes you might be a leader and other times you're a follower. Um, I think that's a fascinating point for, because for me, that raises issues of, again, around perhaps that great leadership, the great leader story of the need to control the situation too. So, you know, you often see times when people have to be in followership positions and that can be very uncomfortable for them because they so want to control the way forward and the outcomes. Real challenge. Yeah, including the, the group yeah. thing. But let's leave yeah, it for yes. discussion. Yeah. <laughs> it's so yeah. nice. I really enjoy this conversation. How can leaders uh, themselves respond to operating in a VUCA world after all those interesting things? Um, actually, if it's okay, um, I, I probably, I'll, I'll share some ideas and solutions in a second, but perhaps to set the scene, I'm thinking off the top of my head. I'd written some notes. I came across those notes I said the other day um, that I used for researching the book from Nen, uh, Benis and Nanus. Mm -hmm. And where um, they had said, hey, is that yes? If I can just share with you and your viewers a, a couple of grabs from their book that I find fascinating in terms of what was happening in the mid 80s. And then I'll very quickly get to answering your question. But in response to that world that was 
getting more complex and set with polarities, contradictions. These academics were seeing that um, institutions in response, they, they used the term, there was plotting pandemonium, which I think is a very vivid image as to what was happening there. They were rigid and slothful. Um, leaders were ignorant, out of touch, insensitive and unresponsive. And one of the conclusions was that um, Bennis and Nannis felt that leaders lacked capability, lacked the capabilities necessary for the future. Um, and they also lacked emotional intelligence. So that's quite a damning indictment on leaders and organisations in the mid eighties. But you know, um, perhaps uh, for you and your viewers, when you get a spare moment, you want to might want to reflect on how far have we come um, in comparison with what they were seeing, like I said, almost 40 years ago. But to, like I said, I, I only wanted to share that with you to perhaps set the context for my thinking around what leaders can do. Mm -hmm. I've given one example, which is um, what I use in my coaching is to get leaders through various techniques to reflect on what are the stories that have created meaning for them and their organisations and therefore, you know, get them reflecting on how those stories um, organise action uh, as an individual and as an organisation and whether those stories are appropriate or their context now. So that's that's a, a big one. But I'm, I'm very mindful of the fact that your viewers probably don't always want to hear, you know, that high-level stuff. So I'd also share the importance of communication. We, we talk about it all the time. And I can't emphasise it enough. And maybe to get your viewers thinking about communication and what is good communication, if I can share with you two really lovely metaphors of communication. One is um, communication as an arrow, an arrow form of communication where you know, just like as we hit the bow and arrow and we release the string um, and we are anticipating that the arrow will hit the bullseye, so too there are so many people in leadership positions that when it comes to communicating, they will use either an email or a town hall style meeting to get the word out there, one way style communication, and they think that by then pressing the send button or speaking something that it will it will hit the target and everyone who receives that communication will understand. And, and obviously that's not the case. So another metaphor I'd share with you and your viewers is um, communication as a dance. Uh, so if you can think of an old style dance, um, two partners in a dance, you know, I like that metaphor because it's one that kind of conveys where you don't necessarily have one person leading in the dance, or in this case, leading the communication, that there's times when you speak, there are times when you need to listen. And for a leader, again, can I reiterate the importance of listening deeply, truly understanding your stakeholders internally and externally, um, I think that's critical. If you understand that your stakeholders, you can understand their goals, their values, 
and and respond accordingly. So that's a couple of things that come to mind. I'm sure there's been other people in your podcasts, Spiros, who have talked about the importance of agility. Um, all I'll say as a strategist is that you know, time and time again, I see organisations who want to develop their five-year or 10-year strategic plans, and I'm fine with those generally, but um, I, I think it's no longer appropriate to try and almost set in stone your five-year plans, even when there's significant change taking place in your operating environment. We, we really need to be um, more flexible in, in changing our plans when it's appropriate. But the plans are there to try and communicate how we're going to uh, deliver our visions, etc. But um, we need to do much better. Um, one one more thing that I'll uh, a couple more things that I'll, I'll quickly share with you. It was fascinating when I was doing the research for confronting the storm that I'd interviewed leaders from all across the world, and that was my intention to get great diversity, people from different worldviews, different genders, different age groups. Um, you know, these are prominent people. One was the former um, foreign minister for Sierra Leone, um, a gentleman from the US, an entrepreneur, considered to be um, um, one of the greatest leaders over there in the US. Um, but to a man and woman, um, they all made the observation about the importance of curiosity, curious about your people, curious about your context, curious about the outside environment, and humility, which perhaps comes back to what I said before about vulnerability, spirits. You know, again, it's, it's, it's okay to be comfortable with the fact that you don't have all the answers, but that's got to come from a place of, of being humble. So, um, you know, I could, I could talk to you um, for hours about different ways um, thinking, do we actually go into confront problems with genuinely strategic thinking or are we just relying on past experience? Are we critical in our thinking um, with our biggest problems? Are we just, you said before about group things. So, you know, are we just dealing with our friends, our mates, we're going to give us the answers we want, or are we trying to co-create with stakeholders with different perspectives and co-create with dignity too is a really important point. You know, are we being sincere in valuing the perspectives, insights and expertise from, from other people too? So, yeah, I've talked for a while on that one. I, I will I'll just uh, on the on the things that you just talked about the, the first i will start from the latest one uh, according to the uh, learning from the previous situation this is something that there is a very thick line it is the lessons learned instead of the lessons identified so there is a whole bunch of um uh, of way ways to to use them and to 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 handle them so yes. the one thing that I used to say to the people that I work with is be careful this decline between the lesson learned, the lessons learned and the lessons identified. And that's a great one. That you 
to refer to is that, yes, it is okay to plan, to have a five-year plan, but now the, uh, the need is on to put more effort on the what-ifs, on the things that are saying what can maybe go wrong. This yes. is what uh, we are very... Um, uh, it is very um, important in diving also in the military, that are my, is my background. So in diving, we, we plan according to, to what, uh, what can maybe go wrong and what do we do if. So these in the business field are the what ifs and the combination with the lessons learned and the lessons identified uh, is a great, are great tools in order to have more stability, kind of, in these five yes, years. Yes. Do not just focus on the outcomes and the results or put some more effort to the things that can maybe um, slow you down. Yes, yes, yes. All right. What about your book? Well, um, it's been an absolute ride. Uh, coming back to something I'd said at the start of, of our conversation, Spiros, where you talk, we're trying to give yourself and viewers a sense of, you know, where my career has come from. Mm -hmm. And I probably said something at that point in time about how even back in those times as an ecologist, uh, that has informed my thinking uh, and my values, even to this point in time certainly with my thinking, but the point of that is that I'd been seeing for so long that leaders were struggling to appreciate the importance of how social and environmental issues impact upon their bottom line um, and their reputation and engagement of their staff and so on and so on. So this book had been within me for about oh, at least 10 years. And just before the pandemic was announced, I signed a contract with a US publisher and started writing the book. And so I used a lot of, I don't know how it is for your viewers across the world, but here in, in Sydney in 2020 and 2021, we had a number of lockdowns. Um, one of the lockdowns, I think in 2021 was maybe around three to four months. So I used that time um, to research, to interview, and obviously at that time, people were getting used to um, phrases like Zoom and Teams, etc. Um, and all that research and, and interviews, you know, a lot of times been interviewing these amazing leaders from across the world who are truly confronting um, what it's like to operate in a VUCA world. And what came out of all of that was that for me, probably the biggest argument I make in the book is around that issue of, of the stories that we work towards, the, the story of the, the great leader or the story of, um, there's often a story out there um, around treating the environment, the natural environment as a machine that we can kind of pull it apart and put it back together again and all will be fine. But that machine is kind of separate to our organisations. 
with that in mind, um, with those stories, I love a line from, um, I think his name's Yuval Noah Harari, and forgive me if I've got um, pronunciation incorrect, he's an Israeli historian who says that, you know, in his book Sapiens, he argues that um, what has made humans so successful as a species is the power of our stories in organising people and creating meaning. But so much of our stories are an illusion. They just don't make sense. So I argue in the book that the great leader's story, for example, is no longer appropriate and instead we need to almost democratise leadership. We need to, through that servant style of leadership that hopefully a lot of your viewers know about, you know, we need to be there trying to support the development of more and more leaders so that we can successfully confront a VUCA world and successfully confront um, our most complex social and environmental issues that are going to, you know, as a result, um, impact upon um, not only the planet, but our lives and livelihoods as well. So, um, yeah, it's been a, a wonderful ride. Um, and already I've been humbled and surprised um, getting some lovely feedback from people like um, um, in Australia, one of my um, heroes as a kid was a gentleman named Peter Garrett, who was who is the singer, um, the lead singer of a, a, a band called Midnight Oil, which is known throughout the world, a band that has done so much for decades around social and environmental issues. So I got lovely feedback from him, as well as David Attenborough mm -hmm. and Jane Goodall. So um, I've, I'd sent the book out there to see um, what impact it would have on others, and I've been surprised at what a wonderful impact it's had on, on me already. All right. And where someone can find it and buy it? Excuse me. So they can go to... Probably the short answer is um, the website confrontingthestorm.global um, uh, and you'll see a, a lot of solicitors. You, you can get it from um, prominent uh, sites like uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble. So it's it's very easy to, um, to get a copy uh, uh, as a paperback or as an e-book as well. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> the on how to have access to the book are down to the comments. And uh, why you. David is a great solution for the people that need services like the ones that David is offering and how they can come in contact with you. Um, that's such a great question. The, the short answer is that they can get me at either phoenixstrategic.com.au or david.ross at that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm accessible via LinkedIn, etc. But come back to the first part of your question, which is the most difficult part as to why people would, would want to work with me. Um, I think like you, Spiros, I'm absolutely, I'm not only passionate, hopefully I've been conveying how passionate I am about social and environmental issues and how long I've been wanting to, you know, if you, if you like, very facetiously save the world. Mm -hmm. But boy, I'm passionate about um, 
working with leaders to build their capability because it never ceases to amaze me the stories that get shared with me um, about how lonely leaders feel. So um, the, the, the benefit I provide is that um, you don't bring me in for the, the small detailed stuff, you bring me in for the big picture strategic stuff. And that's not only about the direction of your organisation, but um, for me just as important is for you as a leader, as a human being, to try and help you be the best you can be, not feel so lonely, um, and be comfortable with being vulnerable, etc. Awesome. That for me is a massive reward. David, it was such a great conversation. I, I really enjoyed every second of uh, the time that we spent together uh, today. Thank you very, very much for accepting this invitation and uh, for your support to what we are trying to accomplish with this VUCA leadership. Uh, podcast. Oh, Spiros, look, um, it's um, genuine of me to say that it's been a real privilege to be here with you, particularly as um, the work you're doing around vocal leadership. You know, again, you and I have similar passions in that respect. I, I, I think it's hugely vital, hugely important what you're doing. And um, yeah, want to thank you, um, as I'm sure your viewers would want to do too. With what you're what you're doing now so thank you so much awesome thank you, david um ladies and gentlemen this was david ross uh information and details on how you can come in contact with him and uh, have access to his uh book down to the comments thank you very very much for being here again today see you to our next episode david bye 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 thank you mm -hmm.